I see research as a tool, a very powerful, if you like, potential weapon. We wanted to be able to tell health services how they could make a difference, not just be saying, you know, you really should be doing this. We needed to say, how could you do this? And so research I see as a very powerful means of change. That's what my research is. Hello there, you're listening to Prevention Works, the podcast of the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. Today, mental illness and chronic disease. And I was shocked to discover the difference in life expectancy between people with mental illness and those in generally good mental health. So to hear patients say, you know, I'd quit and I'd actually been stopped smoking for two years, or the family member of a carer of someone who says, yeah, my son had stopped smoking. Then their mental health symptoms worsened, they sought care, they became an inpatient for some period of time, they started smoking again. I'm Gretchen Miller, and I'm at the University of Newcastle in New South Wales with Jenny Bowman, who's professor in the School of Psychology. She specialises in health psychology, which examines the impact of our mental health on our physical well-being. So how much lower is that life expectancy? So in Australia, it's something between about 12 and 15 years shorter life expectancy for people with mental health conditions. So it does vary a little by the type of mental health condition someone has and how severe a condition that is, but it is a noticeable difference across the spectrum. So for all types of diagnoses of mental health condition, in some parts of the world, the difference is larger. So the research suggests can be as great as a 30-year difference in life expectancy in other parts of the world. So 15 years, you know, that's the difference between living to 80 and living to 65 or living to 90 and living to 75. Mm. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering, therefore, how you came to study this. And we'll get in a minute to, of course, mm. what on earth we can do to improve the situation. So I guess for me, the way I came into studying this was through one specific risk behaviour for chronic disease in the general population, and that was smoking. So I had an interest already as a researcher in smoking and in how we could help people who remained smokers in the general population quit. As I started to look more into which particular groups in the community were most at risk for still being smokers, people with a mental health condition were there front and centre, And I had not realised that the smoking prevalence among people with mental health conditions was something like three times what it is among people without. Three times. That's right. So very, very different. And whereas we've seen the um, prevalence among the general population increasingly dropping over time as a very positive story in general around smoking, that has not happened for people with mental health conditions. Not in Australia, not in the US, not in the UK. So everywhere across many countries. This was clearly a really vulnerable, high-risk group for smoking. And smoking remains one of the biggest you know, risk factors for chronic disease, many chronic diseases. Smoking contributes to you know, morbidity, mortality across the board. So my way into the area was through smoking. Then, of course, we realised looking at some of the other major risk factors for chronic disease as well, so things like which are behavioural, so nutrition, our use of alcohol, our levels of physical activity, it also became clear while there was less information that people with mental health conditions were also more vulnerable and likely to be at high risk 
for those factors as well. So it became clear that we needed to broaden our focus from smoking to some of those other behaviours. That makes sense. So I'm just wondering why, I mean, in the general population, and it's really hammered home to kids, right from primary school and has been for some time, that smoking is a real issue. Why is it that mental health makes you so attracted to something like smoking when it is, it's a lot less prevalent in the general population? That's an excellent question. There's unfortunately absolutely no simple answer. So it's, we do know that it's a very, you know, complex interaction of lots of factors. So some of it may well be something to do with a, a biological kind of underlying cause so that for some mental health conditions particularly, there are changes in brain neurotransmitters, etc., that make it more likely that someone may become dependent on nicotine, which is the addictive substance, of course, in tobacco, cigarettes. But there are also many other factors at play. So we think there are psychological factors at play as well. You know, someone with a mental health condition, for instance, may have lower self-esteem, higher levels of anxiety or stress at particular periods of their life that lead them to adopt smoking. And that also mean that it's harder for those folk to, to stop. But very importantly for us and for my work as well, I think there are some environmental, some health system reasons as well that actually make it more likely someone with a mental health condition may take up smoking but also be much less able to quit even though they would want to. I guess it's partly about self-medicating too. There's a self-medication hypothesis and I think that does have something to do with it. But I actually think sometimes that we use that as a little bit of a, um, I think as a reason to look no further, we're saying, well, the individual chooses to do this as a way of dealing with some of their mental health symptoms or problems. And in fact, I would think that there are probably other even more important determinants and influences and some of those environmental things in particular. If someone with a mental health condition wants to stop smoking, it is harder because their whole social circle, the places that they live in, and sadly until recently even the healthcare facilities that they use were actually more likely to encourage smoking than discourage smoking. Mm. To say that a health facility might encourage you to smoke, what do you mean by that? That figure you started with in terms of the difference in life expectancy is a very stunning fact that really continues to inspire the research that we do. But one of the other pieces of information that I came across very early was that clinicians in mental health hospitals and facilities were telling us, as were patients and as were family members of patients, that patients could go in to a mental health facility, into a hospital, as non-smokers and leave that facility as smokers. And that completely dumbfounded me, you know, in the sense that not only were some health facilities sometimes not helping people's health, but we were actually sending them home with probably the most significant health risk factor known, and they'd previously been free of that problem. So how's that happening? I hope it's not happening anymore, although perhaps it is, but to a lesser degree, there was a rather unique kind of history and relationship, I think, between mental health care and smoking over the years, and not just in Australia, but probably globally. Many people with mental health conditions smoke. In the past, quite a few mental health clinicians and staff in facilities also smoked. 
sometimes at higher rates than the rest of the community. Smoking became sometimes a bit of a, a clinical tool almost so that patients and staff would sometimes smoke together to build rapport. Sometimes cigarettes were used almost as a reward system. So cigarettes were given out to reward good behaviour taken away if there wasn't good behaviour. I've also seen some work in the past from other researchers, so colleagues in the United States, who've looked into the role that actually tobacco companies played as well in actually promoting the use of cigarettes to vulnerable groups like people with mental health conditions. And they were well aware that there were vulnerable populations of people in treatment facilities, etc., who were vulnerable to their messages as well. So a complex history of the way smoking has kind of played a part in mental health care that represented, you know, some of the challenges to be overcome. That's fascinating and strong stuff, isn't it? Confrontational stuff if you're a researcher in this it field. Is, it is. And heartbreaking. So to hear patients say, you know, I'd quit and I'd actually been stopped smoking for two years, or the family member of a carer of someone who says, yeah, my son had stopped smoking, then their mental health symptoms worsened, they sought care, they became an inpatient for some period of time, they started smoking again. And that's absolutely heartbreaking. So you've just completed a four-year study for the Prevention Centre on this. What was at the heart of that research? Okay. Our work really is premised on the fact that we think that healthcare services or other settings that are already in touch and providing care to people with mental health conditions potentially represent a very good place to also provide people with some positive care. So around some of those kind of lifestyle behaviours, I guess, so things like smoking, diet, harmful use of alcohol or not getting enough physical activity or being sedentary. So those are some of our key risk behaviours for chronic disease. So our work is really premised on saying people with mental health conditions are already in touch with many kinds of health services and other services that provide them with care, but mostly care for their mental health conditions. But there's also the capacity that those services could be providing care for people's physical health risk behaviours, those lifestyle behaviours as well. So that's really interesting that, you know, I mean, we all kind of know as just ordinary people in the world that physical and mental health are connected, but it appears that those two things are treated very separately by our health system. Mm. It's, It's an acknowledged, very significant problem that there tends to be a siloed approach to treating mental health and physical health problems. And many people have argued very strongly that, you know, there needs to be greater integration and various models for that, for integration have been tried. So, for instance, saying that perhaps GPs could do more work around people's mental health and wellbeing, mental health clinicians could also do some work as well around the physical. So there's an acknowledgement that we're holistic beings and we mental and physical health very much interact together and yet when people enter a healthcare service or a system we tend to treat just one or the other rather than being able to do a combination. So what did your study look at? So we worked with a uh, community mental health service and we wanted to look at the effect of making it one clinician's dedicated role within that service to be providing some brief care for people around their smoking, nutrition, etc. 
So what we looked at um, with the prevention centre's assistance was offering an appointment with that specialist clinician to patients coming into the service where the clinician would have a conversation with them and if, for instance, they were a smoker and wanted to address their smoking or if they were someone who were perhaps consuming inadequate fruit and veggies in their diet, then trying to help that person link in with existing services that could help them. So quit line, get healthy, coaching service that New South Wales Health provides. It was an opportunity to assess people for those risk behaviours, provide them with brief advice and motivation perhaps to think that, yes, I could make an attempt to change this, and then to link them in with some services that could help them do that. And what outcomes did you find from providing this? Was it a one-off appointment or a series of of appointments? So we trialled a one-off appointment with a telephone follow-up phone call a couple of weeks later to see if the patient had been able to make some progress had um, or needed some more support to do that. So it was a one-off appointment essentially and the key outcome for us was really connecting people with those follow-up services. So what we actually found was very positive so that a significant number of mental health clients were receptive to the idea of this appointment. Those people that we offered it to, most of them came along and attended an appointment and most people took up a referral to one of those services when offered. So it actually reinforced what some of our earlier work had shown that people with a mental health condition and clients in our community mental health service are actually wanting some help to change their behaviours and will actually take up offers of help when it's provided to them. So that means most people want to change. Do you have statistics around that, like what proportion of people want to change? And was that something that you are the first to measure or was is that already replicated in other studies that people do want to want to shift their behaviour? Mm. So I don't think we're the first to measure it, but we are one of the first to measure it. There's still been actually quite little research in the area. In the general population, we actually know that most people who are current smokers want to change. So people are not kind of um, saying, I'm happy being a smoker, I don't ever want to be a non-smoker. And it's very similar. The proportion's the same for people with a mental health condition. So So it's something like 80% of people would say, yes, I'd like to stop. And I've tried to stop. So I'm not sure how long ago you finished that study. Have you you had the opportunity to measure, say, six months down the track, whether whether the intervention had stuck, so to speak? So that's actually what we're still doing now. So we are just finalising our final six-month kind of data collection and analysing that data now. So there's another study that we did earlier, a different study but also looking at people's smoking that was when they were discharged from hospital and them going home and we offered those folks some support to quit smoking in the form of some telephone calls to motivate etc and also some nicotine replacement therapy so in that particular study we absolutely made a difference in the short term and the longer term in terms of people's attempting to quit but in the longer term still proved difficult to actually show a difference in actual quit rates and cessation rates and I think what we found was what others had found that in fact people need perhaps more intensive help and longer kind of support. So that leads us really to your next study, uh, which is also for the Prevention Centre, which you're just starting. What are you doing there? 
So we are leaving the land of mental health services per se. Um, we've been, you know, we've worked in the government-funded health service setting, and we're going into community-managed organisations or non-government organisations. I think they've been known more commonly in the past. So these are organisations that provide a variety of care to people in the community who need support. So they may be people of low socioeconomic status, um, people with a mental health condition, uh, people living with some kind of a disability. But CMOs are playing an increasingly important role in providing support to folk and particularly providing support to people with mental health conditions. And again, we think there's real opportunity here to broaden the kind of remit of those agencies to include more physical health in there as well. And some of them are already doing that and some are not. Are we talking, when you say CMOs, are we talking things like the Smith Family or Salvation Army, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Those kinds of organisations, yes. The point of our new project with the Partnership Centre is really to work with all those organisations, find out what they're currently already doing, work out together with them how they could do more in this space and what they would need to help them do that. And so our work has been able to really build on the policies that exist. If they weren't there as the groundwork, if we didn't know that, there were policies already in place and what we were doing was helping to make those policies feasible and actually doable for clinicians in their everyday work, then we would have a much harder job. So I'd like to kind of dive in a bit deeper now into some of the detail of the picture we're looking at here. I'd like to clarify, first of all, what level of mental health issues we're looking at. Are we talking about inpatient psychiatric or are we talking about major depression or anxiety where you are still essentially functional in the world, you've got a job, you're, mm. you know, mm. you're, you've got a family, etc. Mm. What level of mental illness are we talking about that will severely impact your life expectancy here? That's a difficult question to answer, but a good question. We do know that it's not confined to some of the what are labelled the, traditionally the more severe mental health diagnoses, so schizophrenia, for instance, or as you've said, major depression or something like bipolar disorder. So the evidence says that people with those kind of conditions are more impacted. Their physical health is more likely to be really severely impacted. But the evidence also says really that across the board, physical health for people with any mental health condition is likely to be poorer than for people without. So it's not confined to any particular end of the spectrum in terms of severity or any particular kind of diagnosis, but probably just more marked for some of those more acute or severe kind of diagnoses. But really it's an issue across the board for everybody. You're with Prevention Works from the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. I'm Gretchen Miller talking with Jenny Bowman. Now, most of us want to be more healthy, but it's not as easy as just wanting as we know. So why do we struggle? Hmm, another really good question. And I guess that's one of the key questions that occupies the health psychology area generally. So it is absolutely not enough to be motivated to change, you know, to have the knowledge and the attitudes um, that might help you want to change. 
that's not enough. It's not enough to have the intent. So a lot of our work is actually looking at, well, what really then pushes people to action and what supports people in taking action? So there are a lot of theories around that. Um, So they suggest that it's a matter of some individual factors. So sometimes it is there's a cue to action. So it might be, for instance, that my neighbour over the fence tells me that they've just actually changed their diet, they're feeling much better, or that they've actually stopped smoking for the first time in, you know, 10 years. That kind of cue to action can sometimes be important for us as individuals. But oftentimes there are external factors. And again, I kind of come back to the environmental factors that are very important. So in lecture classes, I often talk to my students and say, you know, give some examples and say, I'd really like to ride my bike to uni every day. I'd like to do it. I feel like I should do it. But the thing that stops me is that there aren't good bike paths and I worry about riding on the road. I feel unsafe, so I'm not going to do it. So a fairly simple kind of environmental change that would make the world of difference to me engaging in that behaviour. So for many of us, I believe there are things not just at an individual level, it's not just individual motivation, but you also need to be equipped with the means then to change and be supported to do it. What I need to know is, for instance, around smoking, what I need to know is that the quit line, for instance, exists, that there are people there I can talk to who will help me tailor a quit program. I've never tried nicotine replacement therapy before. I don't know how that works. I didn't know I could get it for free or at subsidised rates. So when I'm informed and when I'm supported by the environment, I'm actually more likely to be able to make that decision and actually take the step towards action. And when you're mentally unwell, you're really quite vulnerable to stress and pressure and alcohol and cigarettes particularly help mitigate that in the Mm. short term. Mm. And good eating is a motivational thing, isn't it? Absolutely. If life seems very difficult and, you know, you are trying to contend with a lot of things at that time, it might be that thinking about and planning ahead, you know, doing some meal planning, getting to the shops and, you know, buying what you need to make a meal, etc., is just a little bit beyond you at that time. Now, of course, there's a wider impact of all of this, and that is the carers, the individual family members who often pick up the slack. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about their role in, say, helping somebody improve their lifestyle choices or the pressure, in fact, that's on carers to do everything, and this would may well be one more thing? Mm -hmm. Okay. So carers are certainly a very important part of the network of care for people with a mental health condition, and that's really well acknowledged. So they are, I'm not sure they pick up the slack or if they're actually the main underpinnings of, in fact, you know, quite often the mental health care that happens in the community. And they are absolutely trying to help people every day with not only their mental health symptoms and and managing their mental health, but absolutely their physical health. They are often engaged in trying to encourage positive behaviour change. So carers will often say, for instance, you know, I'm very conscious, I try and cook good, healthy meals. I try and go for a walk with the person that I care for. But they are in a very, very 
difficult position. They've got a lot on their plates already and it's one more factor that they feel, I guess, they take on as a responsibility but aren't always feeling well-equipped to do that. Sometimes carers are placed in a difficult position around behaviours like smoking, for instance, where they'd like to be encouraging the person they care for not to smoke, but they will often find themselves being the purchaser of cigarettes and the provider of cigarettes, you know, say for their son who is smoking at the moment. But I guess what our work has shown is that they are already trying to be engaged in helping people reduce those risk behaviours, but would like certainly themselves some more support to be doing that and to be working more closely with mental health clinicians and services to do it in a more organised kind of fashion. And you've worked extensively in, you know, you're currently an academic at university, but you have had a wealth of research in the so-called real world. For example, you've managed drug and alcohol services. Not easy, (laughs) but you're particularly solutions focused, this means. Yes, I am absolutely solutions focused. I guess my background experience, so in some other roles in the past, in drug and alcohol uh, services and a management role there, really helped give me a good consumer-focused focus, I think, to my research. Seeing people, seeing carers uh, struggling kind of with these issues and wanting support, and I could see that research was actually one way to provide that support. So much as we absolutely need good clinicians, we need health psychologists at that clinical end of the spectrum, I see research as a tool a very powerful, if you like, potential weapon. So we wanted to dispel some of the myths around these things. We wanted to be able to tell health services how they could make a difference, not just be saying, you know, you really should be doing this. We needed to say, how could you do this? You know, and so research I see as a very powerful means of change. That's what my research is. Professor Jenny Bowman, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating. Thanks, Gretchen. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You're very welcome. Professor Jenny Bowman there with me, Gretchen Miller and Prevention Works, the podcast of the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. For a transcript, just head to our webpage and you'll find plenty more of Australia's top health experts there talking chronic disease and how they're fighting against it. See you next time.